You're listening to Chris Farrell's On Watch podcast from Judicial Watch. I'm Chris Farrell, and this is On Watch. Greetings, everyone. I'm Chris Farrell, Director of Investigations and Research at Judicial Watch. And this is On Watch, our podcast, where we interview folks who have background information, investigative experience, doing the deep dive on all sorts of topics that you need to know as an informed and concerned American citizen wondering uh, what those things are that your government is doing to you or for you. And uh, today we are very pleased to be joined by Pamela K. Brown. Pam Brown is a highly experienced investigative journalist with years of experience investigating or doing investigative work and deep dive news production at places like CBS News and Fox News. She's now an independent journalist and most recently has been doing some work for the Washington Examiner that's also been syndicated around the country and other outlets. And we're talking to Pamela K. Brown today about her work on a 20-year follow-up story about the spiritual leader of the 9-11 hijackers, a man named Anwar al-Awlaki. Pam, welcome to On Watch. Thank you, Chris. Thank you very much. It's always great to speak with you. And yes, uh, Judicial Watch and you especially have done a lot of heavy work uh, exposing government documents showing that Anwar al-Awlaki was well known to multiple United States agencies. Pam, that's uh, the important thing here. And I think the article that you wrote and that was published it goes under the title FBI Incompetence, Let Al-Laki Slip Away, says retired investigators. The, you know, you've gone back to two FBI agents and talked to them about their experiences pursuing Al-Laki. And what we've seen based on the records we uncovered is that it appears that all sorts of people were looking at Anwar Al-Laki. All sorts of people may have thought that they recruited them. But ironically enough, it may have been Al-Laki that was kind of playing the U.S. government back. So uh, give us, a, please, a, just a, an overview of what sure. of what went into your kind of 20-year relook. Sure, sure, absolutely. Well, because I covered the attacks of 9-11 right after they occurred. In fact, I actually went into Operation Red Beach. I was over in uh, Afghanistan, Pakistan theater in October of 2011. So I consider this very personal. And I also covered Gulf War One. So I'm, I call myself the original infidel. So going back to this story, I had the privilege uh, for, uh, to bring to, to full on the record interviews, a New Jersey state criminal investigator, Jim Bush and FBI agent, Bob Bukowski. Both of these men, when I interviewed them 10 years ago, had been assigned to Pentbon. Pentbon for uh, your listeners is the name that was given to the investigative team assigned to investigate the crash of uh, the crashing uh, of American Airlines 77 into the Pentagon. So because the murder scene, and let's just call it what it is, Chris, is a murder scene of nearly 3,000 people in multiple states, and these two guys, these two brave investigators, you know, sat down and began the arduous job of trying to figure out who aided and abetted and helped the hijackers. So when I interviewed them uh, 10 years ago for Secrets of 9-11 and a follow-up on a walkie called uh, The American Terrorist, 
and these were two documentaries. I worked with Catherine Herridge on this for Fox, and I was I was very grateful they let me do the deep, deep dive on this. It was always striking to me, and especially Jim Bush, sort of, you know, he was not very happy with how Alaki was allowed to enter our country again. And uh, I have always stayed in touch with um, him and Bukowski, and, and literally on 9-11, this year, I interviewed both men separately, each of them for over an hour, to go back to look at what they had done barely nine months after the 9-11 attacks. And Chris, that was confronting the first live person that knew the hijackers, a Jordanian named Ayad Rababa, who told both of these investigators that, yep, Anwar Alaki was the one that tasked him at that mosque in Virginia to help four of the hijackers. And I just want for the listeners to go through the hijackers that he helped. And Rababa, his name is Ayad Rababa, and he was a Jordanian, and he was well-known in driver's license fraud. That was what he did, he got IDs. And uh, I wanna get your input on IDs, Chris, and how key they were for all people that wanna do us harm in America, exploiting the systems that we have here in our country that help us be great American citizens. Pam, the, the, the thing about Al-Laki that always strikes me is, here's a guy who is uh, heading up a mosque in San Diego. He receives two of the hijackers out of the the big sort of, uh, you know, terrorism summit in Malaysia, right? The two two of the hijackers, I think it's Hanji, uh, uh, arrives there with another guy. He's So he's in San Diego, then he appears mm-hmm. in Falls Church, Virginia, where he again facilitates uh, the arrival of hijackers there. He gets them up to New Jersey, to Patterson, New Jersey. I guess at one point there's something like, you know, more than half of the hijackers are all together in one townhouse in Patterson, New Jersey. Alaki is in the middle of all of this. Right. And uh, this helper that you're talking about, this Syrian guy, you know, is running around uh, picking up uh, IDs for these guys like their baseball cards. I mean, you're basically hanging out at a 7-Eleven parking lot, you know, distributing identities to these people. They're exploited for purchasing airline tickets and flying around the country. And then there's the second issue of visa fraud with the 9-11 hijackers. But but these FBI agents that you've interviewed and talked to, they're pursuing it from the Pentagon side of the story. And they they bump into and discover really uh, that there's another effort by this guy, Wade Ammerman, another FBI agent. Talk about that. Right. And I, I want to be really particular because uh, Jim Bush was a New Jersey state uh, criminal investigator, and he knew the streets of Patterson more than anyone. And Bob Yukowski was assigned uh, to the FBI. So these two guys were part of the task force. So, you know, the details of how organized Rababa and the Syrian, as you mentioned, Daoud Shahaza, were and moving these guys around was stunning. So, basically, you can believe this, Chris, two weeks, basically two weeks after the 9-11 attacks, Jim Bush and Bob Bukowski have put the heat on the streets of New Jersey and Connecticut, where the hijacker helper Rababa was very active, and they've got word out everywhere they're looking for Rababa. The pressure is so great that Rababa literally, Chris, walks into the New Haven FBI field office and says, like, I'm the one they're looking for. And it was described to me for the first time by Jim and Bob was that they were like, 
you know, they were still at the time attending funerals for their colleagues that were killed in the World Trade Center. And they had to, you know, go to a funeral and then go up to New Haven and interview the first live person attached to the hijackers. So nine months after these series of interviews and then started uncovering all this and realized that, you know, this network in Virginia where Bob was not selling driver's license at, at, nine, at 7-Eleven to the hijackers. He was doing it, getting instructions from Alaki inside the mosque. And that was the aha moment. And that was June 10th. This is very important because your documents, Chris, June 10th, 2002. So uh, Rababa identifies Anwar Alaki to Jim Bush and Bob Bukowski in some jail cell in outside of Charlottesville, Virginia. Both of these investigators for the first time told me they were, they were pumped. They were excited. They finally had a confirmation. And Bob said the next step for them is, you know, they had shown a picture to Rababa of Anwar Alaki. And this picture came from the Washington field office of the FBI. And both of these investigators told me that in a perfect world, you'd have what they call a six pack and you show someone like, you know, is this Pam Brown? Is this Chris Farrell? And you got like four or five photos. So they had a picture that was pretty good. And they, they were confident that he was very identifiable. And lo and behold, Chris, it was Judicial Watch's persistence years later coughing up FBI surveillance footage showing they had crystal clear images of Anwar Alaki, who pretty much was an asset for the FBI at the time. Meanwhile, these two investigators are discussing their frustration to me 20 years after the attacks that how come the FBI didn't give them a crystal clear image? And the person running this other investigation at the FBI was a guy named Wade Ammerman. I think perspective or timing on this is crucial to, to talk about. Just a just a pause in the story here because we uncovered documentation, actual surveillance logs, the actual written notes of the agents on the ground, not agents, but but operatives from the Special Operations Group, intelligence, or excuse me, surveillance operators from the FBI with turn-by-turn, minute-by-minute surveillance logs of Al-Laki and a variety of photos, crystal clear photos of Al-Laki that obviously they withheld from, from the two folks you talked to. But more importantly, the government mindset concerning Al-Laki at this point was that he was the, the face and the voice of moderate Islam. This guy had been invited to dine at the uh, Secretary of Defense's dining room after 9-11. He was going to be a voice of moderation and kind of like a, a liaison and a go-between. And on the day that he ate at the Secretary of Defense's dining room, the day before, the FBI had put out what they call a BOLO or be on the lookout, a BOLO notice yeah. for Al-Laki designating him as a terrorist. So the day before they announced this, they put out a bullet into the field. The FBI's surveillance team, the Special Operations Group, is following Al-Laki. They literally take him right up to the metro or the subway system uh, gate at the Pentagon and watch him walk in and meet two public affairs officers. And less than 24 hours before, he was supposedly designated the terrorist. That is what's <laughs> devastating in this story to me. It is absolutely devastating. And at the time, Catherine Harry and I obtained a copy of the menu, the actual 
invitation to the launch for Lockheed from the Pentagon. And it was just stunning to actually hold that and realize that the events had played out just as you say. And let's face it, Chris, the active crimes in the Pentagon, I'm pretty sure that building was still smoldering at that time. Uh, and it's just uh, talk about a, a propaganda bonanza for an individual like Malaki, who was radicalized well before he uh, started playing games. But let's not forget that the holy man, Chris, was not a holy man. He, um, how can I say this? He was, he enjoyed prostitutes. He enjoyed paying people for sex, which is not exactly an image that the holy man from a major mosque would like to be known for. That is for certain. And we also obtained the FBI 302s because the FBI, once they realized because of surveillance what Al-Laki was doing, uh, they went out and found the hookers that he was uh, engaged with and interviewed them about, you know, hey, what did this guy tell you? What did he say, et cetera? And I mean, there's nothing earth shattering in the in the reports interviewing the prostitutes. Uh, I mean, there's a, a couple of lurid details that I won't go into, but yeah. the, the point is that Alaki was a phony in this regard. Absolutely, and it is stunning. And for the first time, Bukowski and uh, Bush, and both of them retired, but they talked about the phone call that they made to Wade Ammerman. So just set the scene. Here you are. You come out of a Charlottesville jail. You are pumped as two members of the 9-11 pimp bomb team. You are going, we got him. We got enough to go arrest Alaki. And they're just excited. So dutifully, Bukowski says, yeah, I know that there's another thing, you know, going on. Because uh, there's so many tentacles of the investigation. And to be very clear, um, it was just a pace of investigation that was incredible for all involved. So Bukowski described in detail in my story for the Washington Examiner, where he called up Wade and says, yeah, yeah, we got a, we got an ID from this guy. It's great. And then Jim's in the car. So they're basically driving back together. And so when Bob calls Wade and Wade goes, oh, okay. And he says, yeah, I'm going to go down and talk to him myself. So Bob, Bob says, okay, great. Call me back. Well, Wade Ammerman never called back Bukowski, his colleague at the FBI and part of, of, of the team. And he's a, and at the time, Wade is a, a much younger agent. Uh, how can I say this politely? Um, I won't use the language that was uh, expressed to me, but he did not have the depth of experience, investigative experience that Jim Bush had, uh, especially. So he said, you know, he never called back uh, Bukowski or Jim. And then they called him like two or three days later because they're getting nervous. Rabab is about to be deported for driver's license fraud. And Chris, they want to keep him in the country because, you know, they got a lot of stuff going on with Alaki. And um, what he said, uh, Bob said that Wade Ehrman told him, like, no, he couldn't. The ID wasn't good enough. That's what he said. They were absolutely stunned. Can you imagine that, you know, you've got this guy ID'd and Wade Ehrman says, nope, no, you don't. So that was kind of very stunning for both of these investigators who said that the next step should have been keep Rababa in the country, go down with even more pictures. You know, and obviously, from what you, you're describing, Chris, from Judicial Watch, there is acres of images, <laughs> scads of crystal clear images 
That was kind of uh, very, very disappointing. And it haunts these two guys at soccer, and that's why they Correct. talk to you. So when you, when you talk to these guys 20 years later, I'm sure that there are, you know, woulda, coulda, shoulda sort of items that, you know, if they had only known. I understand from reading reading your excellent article that you went back to Wade Ammerman and yeah. uh, asked for his side of the story. What did he have to tell you? Well, it's, it's pretty funny. First of all, he was surprised to hear from me again. This is the first on the record comments that he's made. And he said he's recently retired and he couldn't talk about anything because he's going to be writing a book and he'd have to get it cleared through the FBI. That wasn't exactly the answers I wanted to hear, but he did go on the record. So I find it uh, stunning because the other part of this looming legacy of how a Lockheed was handled or mishandled, which I fully believe goes up to FBI leadership of then Director Mueller and then Attorney General John Ashcroft, is that I asked him, I, I still am in touch with Jim Bush, and I said, and both men were pleased with the story. And I said, what are we waiting for now? I said, there's probably financial records somewhere where a particular government agency, be it the FBI or the CIA, was paying for Alaki to travel around the world. I, I, this is this is something I just want to get your opinion on because I don't know uh, how much you how many times you travel to Yemen, uh, Chris, or or to London, but it's it's not cheap. Yeah, I think your point is well made. This is all government sponsored travel on the part of Alaki, and we know that in part because uh, Alaki had left the country for a period of time and then had returned. And I know that you're of the opinion that he actually returned at the request of Wade Ammerman because he's held up at JFK Airport and Customs and Border Protection people, you know, move him into what's referred to as secondary, meaning, a you know, a holding room where he's going to be questioned further. And we know because we have the documents, we have the FBI mm -hmm. uh, facts yes. cover sheet where they're directed to release him. They wanted paper, the customs people. And so if somebody, we don't know who, but somebody, because they redacted it naturally, but Wade Ammerman or one of his colleagues basically said, don't worry about it, clear him, let him in, because they wanted him in the country. And so, you know, this is all, in my view, uh, this guy is a, you know, government recruited and sponsored informant or cooperating witness or whatever term, depending upon what agency you're talking about, what how they want to call him. But he's on the books in the United States. The question is how many books, whether it's he's been recruited you know, twice by the FBI and once by the CIA. The great irony in all of this is that this guy was instrumental in synchronizing and coordinating the attack of 9-11. And he slips away, he gets away. Uh, and then because it is so embarrassing, because it's so damaging what this guy did and how he did it, and the fact that he is an American citizen born in New Mexico, which everyone, not everyone, but many people sort of conveniently forget. When President Obama ordered a drone strike on him and killed him, I mean, that was a form of, uh, you know, non-judicial action, right? So Obama ordered the death of an American. And, you know, I'm not sympathetic to Al-Laki. Believe me, I'm not, you know, saying, oh, he should have received special treatment. But there is a rich irony in Barack Obama ordering a drone strike on an American citizen who he didn't dare have appear in American court. I couldn't agree with you more. 
Jim Bush and Bob Bukowski both separately said the following to me. Why did we not have probable cause to arrest Alaki, but we had probable cause to drone him? And that is chilling. And I, I just wanted to draw attention that when Alaki was brought back and Ammerman helped get him broomed and others back to participate in another case, the case that Alaki was used for is a case known as the Virginia Jihad or paintball case. And I know that you're, you're down in the Virginia area and, uh, you know, that case is a big problem. It was, uh, it's still under appeal because this, uh, guy, Dr. Altamimi served close to 15 years of supermax based on some really, how can I, I don't, I'm not a lawyer, but I'm going to say, uh, there's a lot of, uh, interest in how the evidence gathered against him may have been fabricated by Anwar Awlaki, and that's being appealed at the highest levels of our judicial system. But it's it's terrible. Jim Bush characterized it. He said, he's so bothered by the timeline. Jim Bush said, you know, he talked to himself. He says, I'm a task force officer. He says, the kibosh was put on us. What do they have going on? I never found out anything. And he just thought, what's more important? What kind of case, Chris, could be more important than the largest terror attack and murder on U.S. soil. There is uh, there's no explanation for that. and There's no way to rationalize it and, and come up with some sort of an excuse as to how Alaki gets in the way of investigations. And I, I, I am convinced and remain so until I see something otherwise that, that changes my mind, that there were multiple recruitments of Alaki, that Alaki actually played the FBI, uh, he may have played the CIA. There's an interesting sort of backstory about Al Laki as a young man or as a younger cleric leading a group to Saudi Arabia on Hajj. There's this story out there. I don't know if it's true or not, but there's a story out there that he may have gotten in trouble somehow at the Hajj uh, visit with this youth group that he was leading when arrested. He suddenly claimed, you know, I'm an American, I'm an American, I want to see a consular officer. The consular officer that came to see him in Saudi Arabia uh, may not have been a consular officer, if you know what I mean. Wink, wink, yes. nod, nod, meaning he may have been a CIA officer. And that really may have been the the first relationship, yes. the first contact with al Laki. And so you have the CIA involved, you got the FBI running two different angles on him. And it's all just too embarrassing. It's too, it's too, uh, it shows too many weaknesses, too many flaws in our law enforcement and intelligence systems. And that's why it's perfectly fine for Barack Obama. It's much easier to just hit him with a drone strike and a hellfire missile than ever, ever have his full story be told. I, I think you're right. And the third group that he was on the payroll for in some manner was obviously Al-Qaeda, because from the documents that you obtain, he's clearly labeled as IT slash UBL slash Al-Qaeda investigation. What could be more clear than why are you looking at this guy? So yeah, it's, it's, I will continue to hope that people come forward to trust me and to tell their stories. I think that's really important. And I just don't want the legacy and the information on this 
to fall by the wayside. And, and to remind, remember now, Chris, the legacy, because Allahi continued, became even more radicalized and more taking more action because after he was let go, he went on to inspire Nidal Hassan, the Fort Hood shooter, the New York subway bombing plot, multiple attacks in England, and those at the Fort Dick Six. So other Americans and other people died because he was still out there. Pamela K. Brown, who we're speaking with, has written this incredible story. It's a 20-year relook at the Anwar al-Awlaki case. It's called FBI Incompetence, Let Anwar al-Awlaki Slip Away, says retired investigators, published from the Washington Examiner and then syndicated around the country. Pam, thank you so much for being with us. We appreciate this very important relook at what I think of as sort of lost history, right? The lost history of 9-11 and the important perspectives 20 years later. Pam, thank you for your time. We look forward to having you back again on another edition of On Watch. We really appreciate your kind of deep dive, long form investigative journalism, and uh, we wish you the very best going forward. Uh, thank you, Chris. If I could just mention one more thing. On top of everything else, I've done a deep dive on a uh, investigative true crime podcast series, which will be coming out soon, called Killing Time, the podcast. And uh, my first uh, six episodes are devoted to the Jennifer Farber Dulos case, which is a story of a Connecticut mother of five who was murdered, most likely by her husband a couple of years ago, but they have not found her remains. So it's an interesting true crime investigation done with my colleague, Cynthia Fagan, formerly from the New York Post. And anyway, I'll send you a link, but it's, it's going to be up there, but it's called Killing Time, the podcast, but telling deep stories. And I will ask one thing, Chris, because of what Judicial Watch does. I will get back to you for some requests on perhaps uh, monetary records that might be looming in your uh, archives that might show how much money we paid on Waralaki. That's great, Pamela, and, and we will follow through on that. Again, the article is FBI Incompetence Let Anwar al-Awlaki Slip Away, says retired investigators, reported to us by Pamela K. Brown, an investigative journalist with exceptional credentials. I recommend the story to you, and I recommend that you follow Pam's work. It's a great privilege having you on, and we look forward to having you on again. I'm Chris Farrell on Watch. Thanks for listening to Chris Farrell's On Watch podcast. For more information, visit www.judicialwatch.org because no one is above the law.